The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. All right. Uh, I don't know if... Is this working? I think so. Sorry, I'm still not used to all the mechanics of preaching in person. Okay, so we have a really, really long passage today. Um, so that tells you, tells you something about what we will or won't be able to cover. Uh, definitely not every single bit of it. But thank you for reading that long, long passage for us, Kat. Um, all right, good morning. It's nice to be back and it's nice to see you all after a month away. Uh, if you've only been joining us since early December, you probably have no idea who this dude is. That's okay. Uh, my name is Ikan, and I'm actually one of the covenant partners here at GCC. It's just that uh, I've been back home in Sarah for a month, uh, but I came back this week for the wedding of a certain couple that we all love very much. So congratulations to Josh and Andre. I don't know if they're with us today, but, uh, but also to Caleb and Serena. So two newly married couples, you do love to see it. Uh, so speaking of families, okay, not the best segue, but back into the world of Genesis we go, okay, about promises, land, inheritance, covenants, husbands, wives, sons, uh, messed up families, faithlessness, and God's faithfulness. So if you are just joining us this week, we're in the second week of our sermon series in Genesis titled, But God. Uh, so last week, uh, Manhong kicked us off with the first half of Genesis 25 up to verse 18, and that's where we learn about Abraham's death and his multitude of descendants and how that was a transition period and how God's faithfulness does not stop. Okay, so this week, we'll be examining the whole narrative of Jacob and Esau, um, Isaac's twin sons. It's a very famous story. If you're a Christian who's been in church any amount of time, you're probably kind of familiar with it. Uh, or if you're not a Christian, you've probably kind of heard of it. Um, but before we go on, uh, just note, you probably noticed that our passage today, as Kat said, uh, we practically skipped over most of chapter 26, except for the last verse. Uh, that's because we'll look at it as a separate episode next week with Chris. Um, for this week, it's just the narrative of Jacob and Esau. So uh, do keep your Bibles open at Genesis 25. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this passage that we have. Um, it's a stunning narrative, but it's also uh, horrific in some ways. We see how uh, messed up human beings can be. Um, but there is good in this. Um, so, so help me as I, as I speak. Uh, may your word come through clearly. It's for our good. It's for our profit to understand and will you bring us to worship um, you, O sovereign God? Uh, we love you. Um, may, we, may our hearts be moved to love you even more uh, upon hearing your word. Help me, Lord, I'm a weak man. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm aware that we are starting smack bang in the middle of Genesis, so I want to give a short summary of the plotline of Genesis for those who uh, maybe you, you've, you're not familiar with the rest of Genesis, um, the rest of the book. So I think we can summarize uh, the plot line with a little story, okay? Now, being home with family has some perks, right? I get to spend time with my very young nephews, uh, and two of them are at a stage where they love cars, okay? So I was playing with one of them, and he picked up a toy car, and he said, car, okay? And next, he picked up a truck, and he said, car. And I thought, well, not quite, but yeah, okay, he's too young to know the difference, right? But then a while later, he picks up a toy excavator, you know, those used at a construction site to gully, right, to dig. And guess what he says? That's right, car. And I thought, come on, surely not. But to his young mind, you see, he sees a, a vehicle body, 
uh, on wheels. And he knows that when he puts it on the floor and pushes it, the wheels keep the thing rolling. And he recognizes enough to say, car. And going through the book of Genesis is a little like that, right? We find certain key ingredients in the story repeated, okay? God's promises given, covenants made, flawed human characters, barren women, surprising birth circumstances, descendants, inheritance. They all sound very familiar. But the main thing we're meant to see again and again is the overall plot line of God's faithfulness at work, driving his plan forward to fulfill his covenant promise to bring blessing to his people, Israel, and through them to the world. Now, as we look at this passage, while the characters and the contents of the narrative are different, we, we can recognize enough to say, just like my baby nephew, car, God is still sovereignly at work to bring about his promises right? Different and yet the same. So we have this large overarching narrative of God desiring to bless his people, and that runs through Genesis and in fact through the whole Old Testament. But today we want to examine in particular, okay, God's sovereign grace towards us. Now what that means is we're going to take a look at how God takes us, sinners as we are, and brings us in to be a part of his people and into his plan and into his promises. So large overarching narrative of God's blessing for his people and today how he brings us into the path of that blessing. Or to put it in terms of the Jacob and Esau story, sovereign grace is God choosing people who are troubled and flawed to be his redeemed people and how he works even through human deception and failure to accomplish his redemptive plan. So that's what we want to learn today. And we're going to look at a passage in three parts. Okay, Firstly, uh, God's sovereign decree. And that will be where we look at the remainder of chapter 25. Uh, secondly, God's sovereignty amidst deception and human failure. Uh, that's Genesis, uh, the end of Genesis 26 to 27 verse 40. And finally, God's sovereign grace for the future. So that's Genesis 27, 41 to the end of uh, uh, the passage read in Genesis 28. So God's sovereign decree, God's sovereignty amidst deception and human failure, and God's sovereign grace for the future. Uh, and just on a personal note, I think um, like this passage is, I mean, it's filled with brokenness, but what we find in here is really, really beautiful. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to explain it well, um, but I just hope that we can see how it's it's amazing. When I learned this, it, it really blew my mind. And I was just like, wow, like God is big. And I, I want us to see that today. Okay. So firstly, God's sovereign decree. Now in chapter 25, verse 21, recurring theme, right? We're told that Rebecca is barren, that Isaac prays for her to conceive, that God grants his prayer and that Rebecca conceives all in the span of one verse. So obviously, the, narr the narrator doesn't want us to focus on her barrenness this time, but the focus of this passage is on the children. And the next thing you know, we read that she's, she's pregnant with twins, and we're told they struggle within her. Now, all babies move around during pregnancy. Every mother here knows that. But this struggling between them was so violent that Rebecca actually went to inquire of the Lord. Now, this must have been a very painful and very long nine months for Rebecca, right? Evidently, this is no normal pregnancy. Something else is going on here, right? And in response to Rebecca, the Lord gives her a pronouncement, a decree, right? This is not some sort of prediction 
Like God does not predict, he states what will come to pass. And he says, two nations are in your womb and, the two, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now we'll come back to God's decree in a second, but let's move on first, right? We're introduced to the twins. Okay, we're told Esau, the older, is red and hairy, and then Jacob comes out grabbing Esau's heel. It's almost like he's trying to pull Esau backward. So it seems the battle in the womb continues outside the womb as well. So what are they like? We're told in 25, 27, as they grow up, Esau is an outdoorsy guy, right? He loves to go out, hunt. He's good at cooking. He's probably physically stronger as well. But in stark contrast, we're told Jacob was a quiet man right? More homely. And the author here is trying to bring out the large contrast between the two brothers. They, they, they couldn't be more different. What else do we know? We know that the family dynamics are a little tricky, to say the least, right? The parents have favorites. Uh, Isaac loves Esau because he, he can hunt and he can cook meat very well. And Isaac likes meat. While Rebecca likes Jacob, probably because he's at home in the tents quite a bit more, right? And, and so the parents having favorites is crucial for the following chapters okay so that so that's that's what the family dynamics are like that's what the twins are like let's get back to god's decree so what is god's decree about god is saying that these two sons won't just have kiddie disagreements over toys they're going to grow into two different entire nations and their nations will be against each other And ultimately, God says, one of them will serve the other, right? The younger will emerge victorious. Jacob and his nation will be lord over Esau and his nation. And suddenly, we realize Jacob's heel grabbing makes a lot more sense in light of what's going to come in the future. And we do find this decree playing out in the rest of the Old Testament because eventually, out from Esau's descendants come the nation of Edom, And Jacob eventually becomes Israel. And we find that Edom is hostile towards Israel and are in fact eventually regarded as Israel's enemies. In fact, God God ends up pronouncing judgment on Edom in various places, but most significantly, uh, the entire book of Obadiah is dedicated to God pronouncing judgment on Edom because of how they acted towards Israel. So so for example, in Numbers 20, uh, as Israel is on the way out from Egypt, right, the Exodus story, the Edomite king actually refuses to let Israel pass through Edom's land, okay? In 2 Samuel 8, we find David defeating the Edomites, and what happens? They end up serving him. And then in Ezekiel 25, we're told that Edom takes advantage of Israel, right? Israel has just been invaded by the Babylonians, and what what does Edom do? They invade Judah after it's fallen, right? They take advantage. But eventually, we find that Edom fades from history while Israel continues on. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger, and the judgments of God come to pass. Now, before I go on, just a brief note. I'm aware that all of this, like, it's just lots and lots of stuff to take in. Um, But as we move on, we're going to see how this really sets the scene for what this means for us today. So, God's choosing of Jacob over Esau is referenced a few times in scripture outside of Genesis. One of the first major places, well, one of the major places we see is in Malachi 1, 2. And God tells the nation of Israel, I have 
loved you. But the people reply, how have you loved us? And God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob and Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now, that's a question that actually lots of people still ask today, right? How have you loved us? Right? People look at God, whether they personally believe in him or not, or he's just uh, something conceptual. They say, oh, how have you loved us? How do we know God's true? And God here says, well, do you see the intentionality of God's love? He says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, Israel I've loved you, Edom I've laid ways to. God says, I have shown my love. And we're going to see how that comes to pass in the next part. But just in case we might think that this idea of God preferring Jacob over Esau is confined to Old Testament application, Paul in Romans chapter 9 references Malachi 1 verse 2 and God's choosing of Jacob over Esau as well. So uh, Romans 9 verses 6, 6 to 13, let me read it for us at length. Uh, actually, if you, if you want to turn to Romans 9, that will actually be helpful. We're going to spend a bit of time here. Okay. Uh, but let me read it for us, Romans 9, 6 to 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this is going to get a bit, uh, we're going to go on a bit of a winding path here, do follow. Let's break down what Paul is saying because he sheds a lot of light on our passage. In the context of Romans 9, Paul is grieved, right? What's going on? He's grieved because the Jews weren't accepting the gospel, but the Gentiles were putting their faith in Christ. And he's wondering, has God failed? Has God failed to do what he said he'll do? Has God failed to save his people? But in starting verse 6, he says, no, God's word, his promise hasn't failed. Not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, he's using Israel in two senses here. Okay, firstly, he refers to Israel as the people physically descended from Abraham. And secondly, he uses Israel to refer to all the people of God who put their hope in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. So in verse 8, he explains, what makes you a child is not inheriting, what makes you a child of God is not inheriting the biological bloodline of Abraham, but inheriting God's promise made to Abraham. And then in verse 9, Paul drives home the point by saying, the promise itself was for a son. So the promise to bless the whole world through Abraham's descendants proceeds through God's giving of sons. And ultimately, this brings us to Christ through whom the offer of the gospel goes out to the world. 
And so finally, Paul ends his reflection by referring to Jacob and Esau, and he gives a name to God's sovereign choosing of one son over the other. Everything that we've just been discussing about God choosing Jacob over Esau, Paul calls it election. And here, Paul gives us the key to understanding the narrative of Jacob and Esau. He says, they had the same father, same mother, they hadn't even been born, and therefore they hadn't done anything good or bad, but God chose one over the other. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, this hate is not like how you and I think of hate. Uh, it's kind of like how Jesus uses the term when he says, you know, you follow me, you have to hate your father and mother. It's not saying he should literally feel hatred and anger towards your parents. He's saying, in comparison to how much you love me, it should basically look like hatred, right? And so he's saying, Jacob, I love so much. Jacob, I favor so much that my disposition towards Esau looks a lot like hatred, right? Paul is saying that God's sovereign choice, his election, is completely unconditional. He does not choose people to be his people based on their parentage, their merits, or whatever good they do. God chooses his people based entirely on his sovereign grace, his goodwill, and love alone. And that's why Paul can say in Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. This is, this is great news. If you are a Christian, you're a part of God's people. It's not because of anything you did. It's not that God looked at you and said, you know, I wonder if, uh, you know, he, that guy can do five things. You know, let's see if by the time he's 90, he still continues doing those five things. Maybe I'll love him. No, God says, I love you because in my grace, I chose to set my love on you. That's it. God's love for you is based in himself and God does not change. So now that we understand what the birth of Jacob and Esau means in a larger narrative, Let's move back into the flow of Genesis, okay? So at the end of Genesis 25, we, we see a short episode played out in Jacob and Esau's adult life. Now, Esau comes in from working outside, right? He's, he's an outdoorsy guy, and he's exhausted, and he asks Jacob for some stew. So what, what does any loving brother say? Yeah, sure, come on in, right? Have some stew. What does Jacob say? Sell me a birthright. Now. And Esau dramatically says, oh, I'm about to die. You know, what use is a birthright to me now? What does Jacob say? Swear to me now. Can you imagine how awkward this conversation was? There's just no, yeah, no emotion whatsoever. No, no, no sympathy. Just like, sell me a birthright. Now, we're not 100% certain, okay? But well, the customs of the day dictated that the birthright usually meant that the firstborn son of the family would have a certain privilege. And that privilege is to have a double portion of his father's inheritance. And that is what Jacob is demanding in return for what? For cooking stew. So what happens? Esau agrees, he eats and he leaves. And just like that, just like that, Esau has traded something so valuable, a double portion of his inheritance for a meal, for stew. So already we begin to see shades of the character begin to show, right? Esau seems more than willing to act impulsively, uh, give up valuable things for instant gratification. 
and Jacob seems more than willing to take advantage of his brother in need for his own gain. So we have Mr. Hothead and Mr. Sleazy. Okay, by the end of Genesis 25, okay, things aren't looking good. Okay, and especially, you begin to wonder, Jacob, like this is God's chosen son? Are you sure? Well, let's see what happens next. Let's move on to God's sovereignty amidst deception and human failure. Now, we've already seen a hint at the end of chapter 25, but here, we're going to see how God's election begins to play out more fully. Now, I'm going to trust that you remember the narrative from the scripture reading, so I'm not going to walk us through this part of the story again because it's quite long. So let's start with a question. Who should we imitate in this passage? Actually, the, answer, the, the, the question is not very tricky, right? None of them, right? Don't be like any of these people. That, none of them are, are, are worthy of imitation. They, they all make mistakes, right? So first, let's look at Isaac. Isaac's getting old, and he can't see very well. Not his fault. And, and he knows his time is coming. He says, I don't exactly know I'm going to die, but I might die soon, you know? So once again, okay, the customs of the day dictated that what should happen? A father who knows he's going to die soon should summon his sons, all of them, and bless them all together, okay? But what happens here is different. What does he do? Isaac decides to privately summon and bless Esau. And what? Leave nothing for Jacob because of his favoritism, right? Remember, he prefers Esau over Jacob. And considering Isaac probably might have known about God's decree uh, regarding Jacob and Esau from Rebekah, right? Isaac begins to look more and more questionable, right? If you know God's decree, then why are you doing this? But either way, if we compare Isaac's actions as he approaches his death with Abraham's actions as he approached death, we can see a very clear contrast. Because remember our previous sermon series, Abraham in Genesis 24, he was far more covenant-minded. What did he do? He made sure to get Isaac a suitable wife. Whereas Isaac here seems to be guided by his stomach. Esau hunts and cooks great. Let's bless Esau. Sounds like a good rationale. Yep. The covenant doesn't seem to be on his mind at all, right? Like it's just not on his radar. So ignorance and favoritism. Now let's look at Esau. As we said at the end of chapter 25, this guy seems to be all about immediate gratification and he trades something of great value for present relief. But what's this business with the Hittite wives at the end of chapter 26? Right, about making life miserable for their in-laws? Remember, like I said, Abraham tried to find Isaac a wife and he succeeds. He, 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 you know, he gets Rebekah. But he tells his servant not to find a wife from the Canaanites. Remember what we said the reason was? It wasn't a question of race. It was a question of worship. Marrying into other nations inevitably lead to worshipping other gods. Well, guess what? The Hittites were Canaanites. So it seems Esau didn't get the memo. And it looks like Esau isn't particularly covenant-minded either. Well, can things get better? Let's look at Rebecca. When she hears that Isaac is going to bless Esau alone, she probably thought, oh no, Jacob's the chosen son. He should get the blessing. Oh well, I guess we'll just have to make sure that he does. So Rebecca probably thinks that the end goal is righteous and good. Uh, but she acts in a way that is deceitful and wrong to achieve it, right? Thinking that the ends justifies the means, thinking that getting Jacob the blessing 
justifies all the lie, the deceit, the intentional lies. They don't. So finally, we have the son of the promise. We have Jacob. How's he going to fare? Rebecca instructs Jacob to deceive his father and notice his response. Jacob in verse 11 and 12 doesn't even question the ethics of his mother's suggestion at all. Instead, all he says is, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Jacob doesn't seem to have any issues with deceiving his own father, and the only fear he has is of getting caught. This is a man with no morals, who is perfectly willing to exploit vulnerable people, first his exhausted brother, and then his nearly blind father, his own family. This is, this is one messed up family. I think we can all agree. And yet, what's the end result? What happens? After all the deception, the anger, and the human failure, what happens? Jacob is blessed. Jacob is blessed. And do you realize how close Isaac came to realizing that it was Jacob and not Esau? Right? He notices the voice sounds a little strange. And what if Esau came back just a little earlier, just in time to catch them in the act? What then? Right? It's a razor's edge. But Jacob is blessed. We might not like the circumstances, but Jacob is blessed. Because for all the human stupidity in this passage, Jacob is blessed. It seems Jacob isn't just grabbing at Esau's heel anymore. He truly has overtaken Esau in spite of his his sleaziness, his stupidity, all the disapproval we might have about how he, it comes to happen, God orchestrates things that he overtakes Esau. God's election, God's decree is coming true. Somehow amidst this chaos, God works things out for the good of Jacob. God brings his election to pass. Now, here's the thing. Do you have a problem with that? Do you have a problem with God choosing Jacob, this shady, dodgy, sleazy guy to be the son of the promise? His chosen people? Right? If anything, Esau seems to be a bit more likable, right? You know, yeah, they are the Hittite wives and he's kind of gullible, but at least he's honest, right? Hey, and, and he wears his heart on his sleeve gun, right? That seems to be a bit more preferable, But let me say this, if you have a problem with Jacob being God's chosen son, then let me ask you this, what makes you think you should receive any blessing? Right, think about it. Do you see yourself in Isaac maybe? Are you covenant-minded? Or in New Testament terms, are you gospel-minded? Are you reflecting on how you've been saved by Christ and are you thinking about how you can pass that message on? Or have you, like Isaac, fallen asleep and then you suddenly realize that the gospel is rather far from your mind? Or maybe you see yourself in Esau. What's your lentil stew? What is the thing that you're so fixated upon that you're willing to give up things that are more valuable and more important? Right? Are you running after an idol or idols at the cost of your relationships? your family, 
Are you compromising your faith to get one thing that you really want? Or maybe you're like Rebecca. Perhaps you think that the ends justify the means. Uh, Perhaps you've been willing to compromise on ethics because the end result just seems so good. Remember, God's will is our obedience. Violating God's commands is never God's will, no matter how good the end result might be. Or perhaps, finally, you're like Jacob. Maybe you feel like him, sleazy, doing things for self-gain, even even if nobody else knows, but you know it, and you do it at the cost of other people. Other people suffer because of your desires and your pursuit of them. Or maybe you have a past that you would very much like to leave behind and just forget. Maybe it's a past that you don't want anyone else to know about. You see, either way, either way, any whichever way you find yourself in this story. And in this story, there are no heroes. There are no heroes. You are not more worthy than any of them to be God's chosen people. And yet, this sermon series is titled, But God, right? But God what? And yet, because just just like how God realizes his election of Jacob, think about how you came to believe in Christ. Do you think that you stumbled or accidentally wandered into God's kingdom, right? Did you wake up one day and suddenly decide that following Jesus sounded like a rather good idea? No. Maybe I can put it this way. When you are a Christian, what you profess to believe is that the infinite God of the universe became a man. In fact, just last month, we celebrated that he came as a baby. And then we say that infinite God who became a baby and grew up to be a man, just like anyone else, lived a perfect life. And then that same infinite God as a man went to die on a cross, allowed himself to be killed. He didn't do anything about it. He allowed himself to be killed, right? And then what we believe is that after he died, he was buried for three days. And after that, he rose again from the dead and then he ascended to heaven. But let me ask you, did you wake up one morning and say, that sounds, that sounds true. That, that's truth. That's what I want to live the rest of my life based on. Did you do that? No. God worked things around you and by his spirit worked inside you to make you see the truth and the beauty of his son. Maybe it was a good friend who struck up a conversation with you, brought you to church. Maybe it was a family member who persisted over years and years and years. Maybe you read the Bible, you opened the Bible with someone and you realized, oh my gosh, Jesus is real. You see, God elects and he faithfully acts to call you into his kingdom. Do you realize that this is good news? No, this is great news. Why do you love someone? Think about it. Talking about love, right? Why do you love someone? Could you love someone if they became less attractive to you? Yeah, maybe. What about loving someone who becomes less useful to you? What about loving someone who has almost no use to you? What about loving someone when it will cost you more than you can gain? What about loving someone when it will cost you everything to keep loving them? Could you do that? You see, as humans, we love so long as we have something to gain from that relationship. We can't do perfect unconditional love. 
The other person always has to fulfill some condition, some prerequisite for us to love. But God, God's sovereign grace in election means that he loved you just because he decided in eternity past that he would set his heart to love you. And people, that is a good place to be, to be in the path of God's resolute determination to love you, to bless you, and to work things out for your good. That is a good, good place to be. And it's not based, you know what we say? It's not based on anything that you are. It's not based on anything that you've done. God loves you just because he chose you. God loved Jacob just because he decided that he would love Jacob and Jacob would be his people. You did nothing to warrant his love in the, in the first place. And that means, listen, God isn't going to change his mind about loving you and striving to work things out for your good because you did nothing to attract him in the first place. He set his heart on you. He's not going to change his mind about you. But we can't stop here because all this while, you see, we've been talking about election leading to blessing. We've been talking about decrees and pronouncement, pronouncements and plans but love, real love, is particular, it's intentional, and it is backed up by action. It costs you something. Love is not just talk. Love is not just planning. How do we get, how do we get from decree to action? Or in other words, how does God get from the promise of love to love in action. How do we know that God really loves us? How do we know that God's election means anything at all? How do we know that in spite of all our flaws, our sleepiness, our impulsiveness, our selfishness and deceit, our past mistakes, that God will have us as his people? How do you know? How do you know that God will have you as his people? I want you to look at a mountain far away where man hangs on a cross. This man was not sleepy about God's covenant. He became God's new covenant for us. And every week we celebrate that with bread and wine. This man wasn't impulsive. He could have acted in power and escaped from utter agony and suffering. And yet he stays on the cross for our sake. This man was never deceitful, but spoke only the truth about God's kingdom. And for that, he was killed. That is the same truth that we declare to the world today. This man wasn't shady. He wasn't sleazy. In fact, he was perfect. And yet he ate and drank with cheating tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. How do you know God's love is for you? Because when you look at Jesus Christ, that is God's own son killed, not for some generic love, but he died for your sin in particular. Christ came to the world to save sinners. Our sins sent him to the cross, but gladly to the cross he went for our sake so that we might become the people of God. God's words are not empty. God's love is never just talk. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, 
and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. God's election means something because talk was followed up by action. Election did not stay as just a decree. Love manifested and gave up his life for your sake. Will you put your, your hope in him? I want to close with our final point. I want to close with God's sovereign grace for the future. And let's take something away and, and be challenged and encouraged, right? Firstly, let's remember that even as God's chosen people, there are consequences for sin here in the present, right? God worked things out for Jacob's good, but the pain caused by each person's sin was real and felt. In the end, Jacob had to flee to Padan Aram, where he ends up being exploited, ironically, by his uncle Laban. Right? Let's, let's not grow sleepy about sin. Sin has real consequences. Secondly, in the end, it's actually in Padan Aram where he providentially meets his wives, and through whom, once again, the covenant continues on, and through whom Jacob eventually goes on to become the great nation of Israel. Now, you might be in really dire circumstances. Maybe it's even of your own doing, your own fault but that does not mean there is no purpose in suffering, right? And thirdly, later on in Jacob's life, we read that he returns. He returns as a great man of character who wrestles with God in prayer to be blessed, right? Proverbs 3.11 tells us not to despise the discipline of the Lord, for he disciplines those he loves. God's purpose through trials is to make us into great people of character for his glory. And finally, Will you look around at the people here? Will you commit to giving your very best to love them as Christ has loved you? Loving them for their sake and not your own, without conditions, without agendas. If we believe in election that God did not leave the members of, you know, choosing members of his family to some coincidence, then the people gathered here are not an accident. We are here because God has placed us here for each other. So let's, let's look around. Let's serve. Let's pray. Father, you are sovereign and you are good. We thank you that we are saved by your grace. And this means that we didn't do anything to earn your, your blessing, your love, and your favor towards us. And we can't lose it because it is rooted in who you are in your decision to set your love on us. Thank you for this. Help us to marvel. Help that may our hearts be moved to worship as we reflect in this wondrous truth. We thank you for your son because in him, we are part of your people and we move into your plan, into the path of your resolute determination to love and to bless us. We thank you for that. You are a great God, and we are your people. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.